heart and soul of a nation, beckons the call. The voice of our forefathers heard in the distance. A house divided against itself cannot stand. To reclaim our honor. honor. Our soul. The challenges of a generation call out. Future generations hang in the balance. We choose liberty. This is the voice of a nation. The nation. The nation. The nation. And now, Malcolm. The men who created the United States of America were not the quiet, dignified men we see in the paintings. <laughs> they were a boisterous, bickering group of men who came together to create something that was absolutely unique in history. They were tired of being a part of the British Empire, and they were tired of being the subjects to the tyranny of King George III. They wanted something better. Welcome to this edition of Voice of a Nation. I'm Alana Friedman, your host. These are strange times that we're living in. They're complicated and distressing, and sometimes very hard to sort out. The world around us is nothing like what it used to be. It's dark, and in some ways, it's terrifying. And if we're lucky enough to have studied our country's history in school, that would be before the curriculum became woke and before our children started learning made-up history, we may be tempted to think that times were simpler back then. Well, they were different, for sure. But our founding fathers found their own time pretty complicated as well. When they banded together to create a new nation, a nation unconnected to the British monarchy, they knew that what they were doing was treason in the eyes of the British, and they also knew that if they were caught, they could be hanged or worse. But what they saw beyond the boundaries of their personal danger, they saw something else, something better, and they created something that the world had never seen before, a great experiment, a vision, a dream of a country in which the government was responsible to the governed. And they created what they called a republic, a democratic republic. That was a completely original theory of government back then. It had never happened before. It had never existed. And it was firmly rooted in their vision of a better world. It was a world in which the government answered to the people and not the other way around. This idea was as revolutionary as the war that followed, and it transformed 13 autonomous colonies into a unique and historic confederation, and they called it the United States of America. Now, this wasn't a simple process. They were creating something that had never been tried before, and it was, it was very dangerous to their lives. They didn't agree on all the details. In fact, the political process was much like it is today. There were arguments and jealousies and political manipulations and, and bitter discussions throughout the process of putting this country together. They even challenged each other to deadly duels. They didn't have a radio. They didn't have television or social media through which they could 
publicize their opinion. So instead, they argued a lot. They printed anonymous pamphlets in which they laid out their opposing views, and they handed these out to the public on the street corners, and they published them in public places, wherever they were able to do that. And even back then, there was also the press to help stir the pot. In the end, those bickering founders did something that our legislators don't seem to be able to do. They compromised. They compromised wherever they could. They overcame their differences, and they created something. It was something that went far beyond any other form of government that the world had ever seen. They wrote that vision down in a document that they called the Declaration of Independence. And in that document, they demanded the right to break away from England. And that was treason. King George III was furious because he considered the 13 colonies an inseparable part of the British Empire. And so he sent over 50,000 British soldiers to put down this rebellion. The newly declared United States of America didn't have an army. They put together a ragtag force of farmers and lawyers and tradespeople and anyone who was willing to pick up a musket and fight for their freedom. So by signing their names at the end of this Declaration of Independence, the founders, these American patriots, brought war down upon their heads. They were committing treason against the British crown. And that was an act punishable by death of the most cruel and painful kind. But you see, they had a dream. It was a dream based on a theory of government that required an absolutely clean break from British domination. It wasn't like the British system of government that was ruled by a king where the people were his subjects. In the new American system, individual freedom was absolutely paramount, paired with personal responsibility. The founding fathers had faith that the American people had what it took, the wisdom and the common sense, to take care of themselves and their government. And they gave the people of this new nation the right and the obligation to govern themselves. Unlike our current president, we know the words that laid the groundwork for this new country. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Those words were revolutionary. They formed the foundation for America's liberation from British rule and for its natural growth over time from the Atlantic to the Pacific. It was a concept that was both original and liberating because for the first time in human history, it placed the responsibility of governance in the hands of the people to whom the government was responsible. 
They put all this down in the Constitution, which codified how this new government would be run. It defined the three separate but equal branches of government, how they would provide order and security to the new nation, and protect those freedoms that are guaranteed in the Constitution. So why am I talking about this? It's not the 4th of July or Memorial Day or any of the other national holidays that bring to mind our history. Well, because instead of protecting us, what has happened over the years is that our government has been systematically taking them away from us, those freedoms, one by one, and we are in danger today of losing them forever. So I'm talking about this today in the year 2022, which is more than 245 years later, because what was revolutionary then, well, we take it for granted. We vote, we choose our representatives in government, and then we try to hold them accountable. The operative word there is try. But today, instead of fighting a tyrannical monarch thousands of miles across an ocean, we're fighting a battle against the very people we put into power with our votes. And we're now fighting for the very same principles that our fathers fought for. Only we're fighting our own society and our own government. So let's talk for a minute about what's happening right now in our country. Let's talk about, well, some of the liberties that we've been losing. Liberties that are specifically guaranteed to us in the Constitution and in the Bill of Rights, which was added to the Constitution by our founding fathers. And these documents were supposed to protect our freedom, to guarantee that we will always have them. The Bill of Rights begins with the very basic rights that the founders thought were the most important. In fact, they thought that these rights were absolutely essential in a free society, in the new United States of America. So these rights, the ones they thought were most important, were right at the top of the list. Here's number one, the right to worship as we choose without government interference and to assemble with the people we choose to spend time with, even in church, and the right to freedom of speech, the right to freedom of the press, and the right to petition our government for a redress of whatever grievances we may have with it. Those were the rights that were guaranteed in the very first amendment. But then, in 2020, COVID-19 appeared. And one of the very first things that many of our state and local governments did was to tell us we had to quarantine everyone. And they said that meant that our kids couldn't go to school. Many of us couldn't go to work and we couldn't go to church and pray together. And we could be arrested, and some were, for going to church anyway. We were all supposed to get a vaccine that might or might not work, and might have terrible side effects for some. And if we didn't get what they like to call the jab, then there were places like restaurants, if they were allowed to open, airplanes, and many workplaces where if you didn't have proof of a vaccine, you couldn't go to work. They wouldn't let you in. 
So you lost your job. The science in all this was sketchy at best, but we were all held captive by the tyrants at the CDC and many of the state capitals. COVID-19 gave our government an excuse to apply a kind of tyranny to us that we hadn't seen since the days of King George III. It allowed the government to keep us in our houses, deprive us of our living, our jobs, and forced us to take medicine, vaccines, that some of us didn't want, and some of us couldn't tolerate. And the social media giants, they showed their power with a different kind of tyranny. They censored what we said. They told us that if we didn't agree with their point of view, they would cancel us. We could no longer post on Twitter or Facebook. We could no longer say what was on our mind unless we agreed with them. This was a different kind of tyranny. And it wasn't the beginning, not by a long shot. The government and these massive companies that controlled some of the free speech on the internet, they deprived us of some of the basic rights that were guaranteed to us in the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. They deprived us of free speech and freedom of the press and freedom of worship and freedom of assembly. They decided that they knew better than we did what was good for us. And that was just, as I said, the beginning. Now let's take a look at, at the highly controversial Second Amendment, which reads like this. A well-regulated militia being necessary to the security of a free state, the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. It shouldn't be controversial. It seems to be clear that the right of the people to keep and bear arms shall not be infringed. They put it right up front. This was the Second Amendment at the beginning of this list of guarantees because they thought it was so important. And yet people have argued endlessly about how the word militia means some sort of military organization and does not mean the people in general. But if you really want to know what the founders meant when they used the word militia, just look at what they themselves said about it. Richard Henry Lee, who was one of the initiators of the Declaration of Independence, said this in 1788, quote, a militia, when properly formed, are in fact the people themselves and include all men capable of bearing arms, unquote. Well, this was 1788, so you can forgive the use of the word men not including women, at least I do. It was the custom more than two centuries ago. Sam Adams said this, quote, the Constitution shall never be construed to prevent the people of the United States who are peaceable citizens from keeping their own arms, unquote. And Alexander Hamilton said, the best we can hope for concerning the people at large 
is that they shall be properly armed. And most important, and this is the real reason that the Second Amendment was considered to be so essential, Thomas Jefferson said, quote, The strongest reason for people to retain the right to keep and bear arms is, as a last resort, to protect themselves against tyranny in government, unquote. And he knew what he was talking about. He, just like the others, knew what it was like to live under tyranny and what it took to fight for freedom. Now, after the break, I want to take a look at the Sixth Amendment. It's not one that is as frequently quoted as the first two, but in a discussion of tyranny versus democracy, it has taken on an enormous meaning, particularly following the January 6th riots at the Capitol that the Democrats insist on calling an insurrection, and on the imprisonment of some of the people who participated on January 6th and got caught under the wheels of what they call justice. So stay tuned. You don't want to miss this. Our global experts are brilliant writers and engaging hosts on a mission of a lifetime. You'll find the latest news and inspiration on the front page of AmericaOutloud.com. You've been in that situation. The person next to you is sniffling, or worse yet, <clears throat> coughing. Flu, cold, and SARS-CoV-2 are everywhere. Would you like an additional layer of protection to reduce these threats with an invisible mask? Sold by hundreds of pharmacists and medical doctors, our American-made povidone iodine antiviral nasal spray, Cofix RX, lasts for hours deactivating viruses and germs that make us sick. Find a retailer near you or buy online at cofixrx.com. America Out Loud listeners use promo code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Stay protected with CofixRx. How the spirit of American liberty and justice is woven into the soul of America Out Loud. Now we invite you, friends, to invest some of your time with our magnificent family of experts, their minds and voices. It's all back at AmericaOutloud.com. Liberty and justice for all. Welcome back to Voice of a Nation. I'm your host, Ilana Friedman. Before the break, we were talking about the Bill of Rights and how it was designed to ensure that our rights would not be compromised by a tyrannical government. We talked about the First and the Second Amendments and how important the Founding Fathers thought they were. It's so important that they put them right at the beginning of the Bill of Rights. But let's skip a few now and talk about the Sixth Amendment because it's very current and it's relevant to a discussion of our democracy and the rights that were guaranteed to us in the Bill of Rights. The Sixth Amendment says this, quote, In all criminal prosecutions, the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury of the state and district wherein the crime shall have been committed. 
It goes on to say that they have the right to be confronted with the witnesses against them, to have a compulsory process for obtaining witnesses in his favor, and to have the assistance of counsel for his defense. Unquote. Now, this is part of the guarantee that the Founding Fathers insisted was a fundamental right, a speedy and public trial by an impartial jury. And yet, those people remaining in the Washington, D.C. jail because of their participation in the events of January 6th, many are being held in pretrial detention a year more than a year later. They're being held on various charges ranging from knowingly entering or remaining in restricted grounds without authority to conspiracy, assault, and obstruction of an official proceeding. For these, they have been in jail, in solitary confinement, and without option of bail for what in any other setting would have been a misdemeanor. According to Politico, and I quote, a U.S. district judge in March denied a petition from the January 6th defendants who sought removal from the restrictive housing, saying the D.C. Attorney General had so housed them, quote, for their own safety and the safety of the jail, unquote. But the defendants, or should I say the victims of D.C.-style justice, have reportedly been beaten, tortured, raped, and in some cases held without charges and kept in solitary confinement for well over a year. In April, even uber-liberal Senator Elizabeth Warren complained to Politico about the conditions under which the January 6th prisoners are held. She said, quote, Solitary confinement is a form of punishment that is cruel and psychologically damaging. Unquote. She said that she thought the January 6th defendants were being treated so badly to either punish them or to, quote, break them so that they will cooperate with federal prosecutors. Whatever excuses the powers that be in Washington give, there is no excuse, none, for such treatment of American citizens in any U.S. jail for any reason. The January 6th prisoners are political prisoners who can find no justice from this barbaric treatment, which is, to keep it within the scope of our discussion, unconstitutional. What part of the accused shall enjoy the right to a speedy and public trial is difficult to understand. These prisoners have been in jail for over a year without a public trial. The system is being abused by the politically powerful, and these political prisoners are being held under abhorrent conditions because they angered the Democrats. To put it bluntly, it is political revenge for asking the question, was our 2020 election compromised? It is petty and cruel, and it could be stopped in a heartbeat if the powers that be in Congress were the least bit interested in justice and human kindness. The Constitution is a remarkable document 
But the problem we're facing today is that there is an entire side of the political spectrum, the Democrats in Congress, who are walking in lockstep with a tyrannical speaker who carries a big stick and is more concerned with her power than she is with her sworn duty to America. She swore an oath, as did every other member of Congress, to uphold the Constitution. And yet, her first priority is the loyalty to her fellow Democrats, and she undercuts the opposition without either mercy or common sense at every opportunity. For Nancy Pelosi, the Constitution might as well be written in a foreign language, one that she never bothered to learn. She's probably the most powerful woman in America, and yet the January 6th prisoners have languished under the most horrendous conditions in the city for over a year, when a word from her could have made all the difference. This is a political scenario where human rights and even human compassion have no place. As I said, it's a case, pure and simple, of political revenge by people who have the power but have lost all sense of humanity. I've only mentioned a few of the constitutional issues that face America today and the guarantees that are at risk as our nation hurtles towards chaos in an unraveling of all these things that made us great. And there is so much more to talk about. But there are other things going on in the world today, so I want to talk about another part of the world and what is happening there. I'm talking about the war in Ukraine and the horror that the Ukrainians are facing today and what the world is doing about it. The news from Ukraine is beyond awful. The atrocities that are being committed by Russian soldiers on the civilians who are trapped in cities like Mariupol and Bucha are too terrible to describe here, and I won't. There are no words or words that we can use on radio to describe the horror that Ukrainians are facing in this war. But it is what the Ukrainians are doing that I really want to talk about. What we are seeing in Ukraine today is something that most people never imagined possible. The idea that Ukraine, under massive missile attack by Russia's massive military force, could mount an effective military response, it was unimaginable. That is, unless you were a student of history and can remember the lessons of the Maccabees in 67 BC or the American Revolution in 1776 or Israel's War of Independence in 1948 or their Six-Day War in 1967. In all of these wars, where a small, ragtag group of poor and ill-equipped fighters somehow overcame large, powerful armies and in spite of all odds, won the war. We've seen it before. 
In 67 BC, a small group of fighters under the leadership of a man named Judah Maccabee hid in the caves of the Judean hills and, using guerrilla tactics, beat back the powerful Assyrian army and drove them from the land of Israel. In the late 18th century, George Washington led another ragged group of men against the mighty British army using clever strategy instead of brawn. In its best days, the Americans were outgunned and outnumbered. And yet, they were able to drive the British from the country and establish a new country that we call the United States. In 1948, another ragtag group of fighters, mostly Jews who came from countries around the globe, took on seven well-equipped Arab armies including the legendary Arab Legion, and won a war that began with the establishment of the Jewish state of Israel. And then in Israel's Six-Day War in 1967, that little country was stunned by a surprise attack on three fronts, from Egypt in the south, from Jordan in the east, and from Syria in the north. And yet, in only six days, Tiny Israel was able to defeat all three armies. As I said, it has been done before. It seems that love of country and strength of will are powerful weapons against even the most powerful armies in the world. So when Russia began its assault on Ukraine on October 23rd, even when it seemed most hopeless, it was still not surprising to some of us that Ukrainian fighters refused to give up and that the war that Putin was sure would only take three or four days is still going on more than a month later. The Ukrainians were successful in destroying Russian tanks and planes and driving the enemy back from some of its key cities. While very few people really expected Ukraine to stand up to the great Russian bear and not only survive, but turn the war around and drive the Russians into retreat. This war is far from over. What Ukraine has already accomplished, though, since the war it never wanted began, is really quite amazing. It helps to have strong, courageous leadership. Volodymyr Zelensky was a great surprise to everyone. As president of Ukraine, he was an unknown quantity. Nobody knew what he would do in the desperate situation that occurred when Russian troops evaded Ukraine without provocation or warning. This is a war by the massive Russian army against civilians. The stories are just coming out about the atrocities that have already been committed against civilians, including children as young as 10. This is a scorched earth campaign where the so-called rules of war just don't apply. The Geneva Conventions might as well never have been written because although Russia is a party to the Geneva Conventions for the protection of war victims, its armed forces are systematically violating 
all international humanitarian laws to which they agreed in this war with Ukraine. Their missiles are aimed at civilian population centers and the destruction that they have rained on Ukrainian cities defies any civilized imagination. In Mariupol alone, they destroyed 90% of the city's infrastructure, its buildings, its homes, its hospitals, schools and museums, its utilities, and its food and water supplies. More than 4 million people have already escaped from Ukraine, whose population before the war was more than 43 million. But for those who remain, for those who could not escape, or who stayed to fight, the horror of the last month has been unimaginable. There were three big surprises in all this. The first surprise, of course, was the response that Ukrainian civilians and military showed in defiance of Russian might. The second surprise was the behavior of Ukraine's President Zelensky. Before he was elected president, he was a television comedian, and in one of his shows, he actually played the part of an actor who was suddenly and surprisingly thrust into the role of president. In a remarkable example of art imitating life, Zelensky was elected president in 2019 with more than 73% of the vote. That was during the presidency of Donald Trump, and I'm sure you all remember that famous telephone call between Trump and Zelensky that led to an unbelievably corrupt impeachment trial for President Trump. Now, when Russia invaded Ukraine, no one knew what to expect from Zelensky, and it was probably safe to say that no one expected much. The war was unprovoked, as we know. President Biden offered Zelensky and his family safe passage out of the country. But in an act that surprised most of the world, Zelensky got on television and told the world that he and his family were staying in Ukraine, were staying in Kiev to fight for his country. He urged women and children and the elderly to find safety in neighboring countries, but he ordered Ukrainian men up to the age of 60 to stay in Ukraine and fight for their country. In spite of his urging, many women, particularly those without children or elderly parents to care for, stayed to fight alongside their men. And those who had no weapons made Molotov cocktails from bottles, rags, and gasoline. But they were all encouraged by their president, some to their last breath, with courage and determination. But what is the posture that the United States is taking as Ukraine stands alone on the battlefield? And what about NATO, whose countries border on Ukraine? Are we standing with the democratic government of Ukraine as they fight the much larger Russian army with its tanks and planes?
After the break, I want to talk more about that side of the war, what America is doing in the face of the Ukraine-Russian war, what are our responsibilities, if any, to help Zelensky save his country, and what we can expect the outcome to be. In today's world, there's no escaping the headlines filled with warnings about emerging viruses and dangerous superbugs. Genesis is the only technology that safely and effectively obliterates harmful pathogens both on the air and on surfaces. Genesis plus HOCL neutralize these threats to your environment in just seconds. Find out more about this amazing technology at genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a 15% discount. With Genesis, you'll be prepared for what's next. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Before the break, we were talking about how the Ukrainians responded to the attack on their country by the Russians. Oh, we knew the war was coming, or we should have. Russia had been staging 150,000 troops in Belarus and in Russia near the Ukraine border. But Putin assured the world that they were just there for military exercises. And Biden said that he was sure that Russia would not attack. But trusting Putin has always been a big mistake. We watched in silence as he invaded Chechnya in 1994, in Georgia in 2008, in Crimea in 2014, and in Syria in 2016, where he completely destroyed the ancient city of Aleppo in order to support Syrian dictator Bashar Assad. The devastation that Putin left behind in every one of these places was testimony to the unimaginable horror of Putin's fundamental evil. He has no conscience when it comes to the calculated torture and slaughter of helpless civilians or to the scorched earth policy that he applies to the places he conquers and the people who live there. In his mind, might makes right. There is no other truth in his world. So when a 40-mile-long tank convoy began moving toward Ukraine from the north and missiles began flying into the port city of Mariupol from the east, the lies that Putin told meant nothing. And the war began with a ferocity that almost no one expected. But that was just the West forgetting history 
and allowing this bloodthirsty tyrant to trample over one country after another. And Putin has won every time. No wonder he keeps trying. This is a story that keeps repeating itself through history, and yet we never seem to learn from it. When genocide was being carried out in Europe during the Second World War, America didn't get involved until Germany actually declared war on us. And long after President Roosevelt knew about the death camps and Hitler's campaign against the Jews, he refused to address the issue. Jewish leaders begged him to at least bomb the railroad tracks that led to the death camps to stop the genocide. But he refused. It was only after Germany lost the war that our troops went into the camps and saw the horror that Hitler had perpetrated. But that was already after millions of people had died at the hands of the Nazis. Six million Jews and another six million Romanis, disabled, Catholics, and so forth. And when the Holocaust was nearly 50 years behind us, between April and July 1994, in Africa, in Rwanda, more than half a million Tutsis were murdered by armed militias. The slaughter went on for nearly four months. We knew about it, and so did the UN. And nobody did anything to stop it. Today, Genocide is being committed right in front of our eyes. We get it in our daily news reports. We see the pictures on our television screens. The lifeless bodies of murdered civilians, men, women, children, and the elderly, whose only crime was being unable to escape. Little children tortured and murdered in cold blood. Hospitals bombed into oblivion. Schools demolished. And where is America in all this? What is the posture that the United States is taking as Ukraine stands alone on the battlefield? And what about NATO? The war began with a ferocity that no one expected. But we still did nothing. Ukraine asked us, begged us, for MiG fighter jets that we had in Poland. But Biden refused to release them. When he was asked why, he answered in a single sentence. Well, it wasn't even a sentence. World War III, he said, and walked away. Zelensky wasn't asking us for our servicemen and women to fight their war and maybe start another one. No, that's not it at all. They were asking for the planes and the missiles and the drones and the ammunition so they could fight their own war and defend their country by themselves. So what did Biden do? He flatly refused to help them shut down their skies by releasing the MiG fighter jets, which were now next door to Ukraine in Poland. Those planes flown by Ukrainian pilots, could have helped shut down the skies where the missile strikes were coming from. 
Over the years, we have watched genocide after genocide within a generation or two. And we have seen what happens when no one even tries to come to the rescue of innocence caught in the middle. So here's my question. How can we stand by and watch another genocide take place without doing everything in our power to stop it? And how is it that the administration does not understand how critical the time factor is? That every hour that they delay delivery of weapons and the other engines of war that they have promised, the cost is in human lives. People, mothers, fathers, sons and daughters who are murdered by the Russian missiles and tanks and guns and soldiers on the ground. We are not the world's policemen, but we can help and we should. But instead, Biden has made promises of weapons and then slow walked them to delivery at a time when every day, every hour counts in human lives in Ukraine. Many people have asked, how can we intervene? And then they come up with a long list of reasons why we shouldn't. Most of these so-called reasons are meaningless in this situation. We don't want to start another war. We are not responsible for the problems of other nations. We don't want another single American to die on foreign soil fighting a war that is not our own. These are good reasons. But I said they are reasons or excuses that are meaningless because we're not being asked to send our soldiers into war. We're being asked to provide the military support to the Ukrainians so that they can send their soldiers into war. It's a war they're already fighting. They just need more and better weapons with which to fight it. And we, who can supply these things, are being asked to do just that. Help Ukraine by supplying the weapons and planes and guns that will give them the ability to fight Russia on more even ground and win. Under the circumstances, I don't think it's so much to ask. We have the weapons and the ammunition and the drones and the planes. The calculations are simple. If we do that, the Ukrainians have a good chance of winning the war. If we don't, the chances go down. It's simple, really. So the question is, which side are we on? Does might make right? Will the Russians win this ghastly war because we refuse to meet the defensive needs of Ukraine's fight against Russia? The story of the Ukraine-Russian war of 2022 is far from over, and there are still more questions than answers. The Ukrainian forces are winning against impossible odds, but the tables could easily turn if they don't get more help soon. It's on us now to help them fight their war for freedom against tyranny. 
Now, I have a few words to say about something that happened on Thursday, April 7th in Washington. It was disgraceful, really. The United States Senate confirmed the appointment of Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. It's disgraceful because Judge, now nearly Justice Jackson, will probably be the least qualified of any justice on the court. It was clear throughout her hearing that her knowledge of the issues that would most likely be heard on the court were sketchy at best. In the hours before the final vote, the Democrats kept harping about how qualified Judge Jackson was to serve and crowed about the achievement of getting a black woman on the Supreme Court. Chuck Schumer even called her an impressive nominee. And Dick Durbin talked about how this building was built with slave labor, unquote, as if that had anything at all to do with either Jackson's nomination or her appointment. To be sure, Jackson is the first black woman to ever be appointed to the Supreme Court, and that's an achievement. That's an accomplishment. But there's something wrong with that. There were only two qualifications that Biden set forth for choosing his nomination. It had to be a black woman. It should have been rejected on its face because the appointment of a justice of the Supreme Court should be based on qualifications, past performance, a deep knowledge of constitutional law, and a clear, proven judicial philosophy. It should not be based on the color of a person's skin or his or her gender. And as a result of this decision on the part of the president, the candidate he chose had no clear evidence of judicial philosophy. In fact, throughout her interview by the Senate Judiciary Committee, she showed an uncommon lack of any judicial philosophy. Iowa's Senator Chuck Grassley stated it very clearly. He said, quote, judicial nominees, their philosophy, how to decide cases, ought to be a primary consideration. Judge Jackson explained to us that she does not hold a position on whether individuals possess natural rights. Now that ought to be shocking. Natural rights are basic to our constitutional system and principles of limited government. Judges must have a proper understanding of those basic principles. The way Judge Jackson answered those questions shows that she lacks those very necessary foundations." Unquote. The arguments against Judge Jackson's taking of her place on the highest court in the land are not only based on general issues relating to her philosophy, but also to her rulings on specific types of cases. Specifically, her pattern of giving very light sentences for child porn cases in which she gave lighter sentences to the defendants than even the law suggested. The damage that porn, child porn in particular, does to the victims is deep and lasting. The fact that she awarded such light sentences to purveyors of this industry an industry that causes such damage to the children who are its victims, should have been a warning of how distant she is from the real world of jurisprudence and its impact on society. 
In the course of her interviews, she also refused to define what is a woman, a question of growing importance in these days of transgender issues, which are certain to come before the court. How can she possibly rule on them from a constitutional point of view when she can't even define what a woman is? Any teenager with a basic education in biology knows that you can define a female, a woman, as a person with two X chromosomes and a male or a man as a person with one X chromosome and one Y chromosome. But Judge Jackson refused to deal with the question at all. She didn't answer it on any level. She refused to answer it. She said, I can't answer that. I'm not a biologist. That was a cop-out and another reason why her candidacy should have been disqualified. It's not clear how much of an impact Justice Jackson will have on the court when she takes her seat upon Justice Breyer's retirement. What is clear is that the high regard with which the Supreme Court is held is likely to suffer from her ascending to that court. Her lack of knowledge, her lack of judicial philosophy will no doubt be formed the longer she sits on that court. But the Supreme Court is not the place where justices should be schooled. It's not the place where they should develop a judicial philosophy. It's a place where they should bring their experience and wisdom and knowledge to the court that decides the most important questions regarding the application of law in the United States. I wish Judge Jackson good luck when she ascends the bench and becomes Associate Justice Jackson. We will have to wait and see how much influence she will have and how much good she can do as the first black woman on the highest court in the land. And one more thing. The Boston Marathon will not be the same this year. Not exactly. In a show of solidarity for Ukraine, Russian and Belarusian runners will be excluded from the marathon this year. In a statement to the press, the Boston Athletic Association, which runs the marathon, made this announcement. Like so many around the world, we are horrified and outraged by what we have seen and learned from the reporting in Ukraine. We believe that running is a global sport, and as such, we must do what we can to show our support to the people of Ukraine." Unquote. On the other hand, the director of the Multicultural Resource Center in Massachusetts said that she was horrified by the decision. She said, I'm in shock. I really have no words. But then she gave us words anyway. I would never expect something like this, she said, in Mass not in Massachusetts, especially in Boston. The Boston Marathon, which will take place this year on April 18th, is always held on Patriots Day in Massachusetts. So in addition to the marathon, there will be 
thousands of spectators who will also attend Revolutionary War reenactments and so forth. This is also the marathon where two brothers in 2013 set off bombs at the finish line of the Boston Marathon. The older brother, Tamalan, died in a shootout with police several days after that massacre. His brother, Jokar, is on death row now for the same attack. According to the Boston Athletic Association, there were 63 Russian and Belarusian runners who were registered for this year's marathon, which is in its 126th year. The marathon will go on, and probably the Russians and maybe the Belarusians will not be running this year. As I said at the beginning of the show, these are strange times that we live in. They're complicated and distressing, and sometimes very hard to sort out. It is up to us, patriots, Americans, people who love this country and who believe in the principles that the Founding Fathers set down in those timeless documents they called the Constitution and the Bill of Rights. It is for us to somehow redirect the route that we are on, to return to the values that gave our citizens self-respect and love of country. This is Alana Friedman on The Voice of a Nation on the America Out Loud Network. Stand tall, my friends, and stay safe.